Good morning. How are you this Memorial Day weekend? Good. I brought something with me just to start this morning to show you that when I'm up here, I don't make things up. I um, walked into the office this past week, and uh, Melanie Dyke said, you got to go to Stephen Berry's. got to go to Stephen Berry's. There's this T-shirt. So I'm like, what? So I go to Stephen Berry's, and I'm walking in there, and I find this T-shirt. I had a clerk help me find it because I couldn't find it at first. I don't know if you'll be able to see what this T-shirt says. There's a picture of Buddha on it, and it says, rub my belly for good luck. Um, if you weren't here last week, you have no idea what we're talking about. If you miss a week, you miss a lot. Um, I won't be wearing this T-shirt anytime soon. And then, yeah, amen. And then I thought, um, and then I thought, you know, who wears this? And so then I, I had to, I had to go research, right? That's what I do. I go research, and I find a, there is no official Buddhist doctrine. No Buddhist doctrine at all that says that there is good fortune or luck by rubbing the belly of the Buddha. So uh, a Buddhist, at least a serious one, is not going to wear this shirt. Um, so who buys this thing and wears it? I was wondering. Then I thought, like we talked about last week, you know, is it part of the devil's silliness campaign? Does this thing just pander to people who think, oh, what's the harm? False God, false religion. It's just a little fun, rub his belly, I'll just wear it. Uh, is it because um, slowly but surely one of the devil's tactics is to convince us that the spiritual realm, which includes very real, real power, <laughs> read your Bible, you'll find it in there, um, to convince us that the spiritual realm is just silly. So I kept the tag on. I figured if I use it as a teaching aid and didn't wear it, I could still bring it back. Does that work? All those... 8.98, right? The Dutch in me was tempted by the two for five dollars, but I didn't go there. <laughs> you know, I don't even want this thing up here on stage with me, so I'm gonna put it in there. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Um, do something a little bit different this morning. Uh, I'm not really starting at the end, but I, I want to jump right in to something this morning with you. Um, and I'm going to put it in the form of a question. I've got a question for you this morning, and the question is this. Do you ever wonder, do you ever wonder if our faithfulness really makes any difference? Do you ever wonder that? Are we making a difference? Is the church, is it making a difference? Or is this whole Christian enterprise... This whole Christian thing, one colossal waste of time and resources. You ever wondered whether your faithfulness really makes a difference? What I'm getting at is this. We, we accept Jesus as Savior and Lord of our lives. We're saved in Jesus' name. And then we set out with God's help. With the help of the Holy Spirit in particular and with the help of others, hopefully, we set out to teach and preach and live the love of God and love of others in Jesus' name as Jesus Himself commands us to do. And it's hard work. It's hard work, this love of God and others, if only because or especially because 
our love of ourselves is such a challenge to consistently overcome, isn't it? But we do our best. So help us, God, to be faithful. And yet, the world doesn't seem to change for the good very much, does it? In fact, it often seems to be getting worse. Not everyone repents of sin and joins in the Jesus chorus. Chaos and evil continue on. People, especially the the broken and the needy ones, are victimized and they suffer. Immorality. Immorality is rampant. I read this past week that child porn... Not even pornography as a whole, but, but child porn is now a $20 billion a year industry. $20 billion. Child porn is among the fastest growing businesses on the Internet with an increase of 15 per, 1,500% in only nine years. It's estimated... It's estimated there are over 100,000 child pornography websites. And it gets much, much worse. It's, it's estimated that over 12 million children a year worldwide are forcibly exploited and up to 1 million individuals even sold in our enlightened age. Human trafficking across national borders is now estimated at around 1 million people a year. Crunch the numbers, that averages to one person every 30 seconds sold for unspeakable purposes, many who don't even survive. And there are many, many other examples of rampant Evil, sin, immorality in the world. Church has been around for at least 2,000 years. Believers in God, our God, for longer than that. So do you ever wonder whether our faithfulness really makes any difference? I mean, in the face... In the face of so much sin and evil and mayhem and ugliness and pain and exploitation of the weak, especially, it's very tempting, isn't it? Very tempting. One, one can almost understand and even empathize why Christians might retreat from that battle. Retreat even, even into their churches. Content to only bask in the fact that they have their individual salvation safe and secure. Content to only recite doctrines and creeds. Content to only sing songs of praise and worship to God. But as far as our faithfulness making an impact, making a difference out there, are we kidding ourselves? We'd like to help. We've been agonized and weep I hope over the evil in the world and over reports like the one I just read, we're certainly ready to let anyone in here with us. Sometimes, unfortunately, only if they're enough like us by passing 37 mostly non-essential theological doctrines. 
But making a difference out there? What's the use? What's the use against all that? As the song goes, we have decided to follow Jesus. But to what end? To what ultimate end do we follow Jesus? Why do we follow Jesus? For our own safety and security, our own enjoyment and pleasure, our own private or even communal experience of God only? Is that why we follow Him? See, when we accept Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, when we say, I do, to this free offer of grace, when we make that choice to serve Him, yes, that is indeed a great moment. What a huge moment in someone's life as they work out their salvation when that person makes that conscious decision, I'm going to follow Jesus and asks Him into their heart. But to what end? Have you ever thought of that? The end of personal salvation? To be sure. But even that, to what end is our personal salvation? Is that the end of the answer? If personal salvation is the end of the answer, then why not God just rapture us up right now? Someone might suggest, well, I think it says somewhere in the Bible, personal salvation, the whole purpose, to the glory of God, or to give God the glory, or God's glory. And yes, that answer gets a biblical and theological gold star. It's absolutely correct. Our salvation is indeed for the glory of God. But even then, we need to keep asking the question, like one of those VBS kids, when you volunteer, that will keep asking you, why, 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 why? You get in the why loop, right? We're not ready yet at personal salvation or even to give God the glory to answer the final why by saying, just because. Not yet. To what end does our personal salvation glorify God? To what end does God desire the glory? Is God just one big glory hog? Just wants all the glory? Or does God desire the glory our, our personal salvation brings Him so that through us, through our love of God and others, the world might know Him as God? Ah, now we are getting somewhere. Isn't God's intended end of our personal salvation and His resulting glory so that the world may know there is a God and salvation in Jesus' name alone? You see, God's not a glory hog for glory's own sake. Rather, God wants the glory, wants the attention, wants the credit, wants the pointers, because God is a people hog. He loves people. That's the ultimate answer to all those why, 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 why questions. Ultimately, all of it, all the universe, all the people, all the history, all of it, Ultimately, it's because God loves His creation, especially people. And why? Why does He love people? Now it's time for the answer. Just because. He loves everyone just because He does. 
I don't know why, but he does. And we can all go, phew, thank God for that. And he wants everyone. Oh, he wants everyone so desperately. And he chooses you and me and his bride, the church, the Bible says. He chooses to reach those people through us. And we miss that part, I think, sometimes. When we stop and only celebrate, ah, my personal salvation. How are people going to find and know and see and experience God through us if we're hiding under the covers with our personal salvation? Cowering away from the evil in the world out there. Does our faithfulness make any difference out there? Shouldn't it? Do you ever wonder whether our faithfulness makes any difference? I think Paul may have wondered from time to time whether his faithfulness made a difference. You recall when Paul was in Corinth a few weeks ago, for us at least, he seemed to be growing discouraged, especially Especially when some of his own people, the Jews, would not accept Jesus as Messiah. Was that perhaps the time when, when Paul wondered whether his faithfulness was making a difference out there? Well, if Paul ever did wonder about that, I bet he wondered less after Ephesus. Your Bibles are open to Acts chapter 19. If you were with us last week, then you remember the context. The seven sons of Siva. Thank you for whoever told me that the correct pronunciation of Sheva is Siva in Latin. The seven sons of Siva have just finished showing us that without a genuine active faith, the name of Jesus is just like any other name. Without a genuine active faith, there's no chance to make a real or lasting difference out there. And the contrast between Paul and those seven sons showed us, shows us that the power of Jesus' name rests in a true, genuine, active faith based on an ongoing, intimate relationship with Jesus as Lord and Savior. And when that word got out in Ephesus and the province of Asia, when the people of Ephesus and the whole region saw in Paul and saw in that contrast between Paul and those seven sons that Paul's faithfulness, his true faithfulness, his relationship made all the difference. Just look what begins happening at Acts 19 verse 17. I'll begin reading there. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus... They were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. 
When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Next couple of verses, Paul says it's time to go to Jerusalem. Let's pick it up in verse 23. He stays in Ephesus a little longer. Luke tells us, About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. Now, archaeologists, we haven't found silver shrines of Artemis, but we have found little silver statue, little silver Artemises. Artemi, is that plural? We've, we've, we found little silver statues of Artemis put in clay shrines. Maybe that's what Demetrius was talking about. And Demetrius now, he launches into this speech. And in an election year, a presidential election year, it's no accident that if you hear in this speech, this speech has political, religious, and economic overtones. He's campaigning here. Let's listen in verse 25. He called them, the craftsmen, together, silversmith, crafts guild. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades. So it's the merchant class in Ephesus, probably a pretty big group. And he said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul... There's contempt there, right? If someone's talking to you about, if someone refers to you as this fellow Paul. You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of, of people. Here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And it's hard. It's hard for us to feel just how strong a presence Artemis was in and for Ephesus. Artemis, the daughter of Zeus himself. Artemis, the, the twin sister of Apollos. And Ephesus, her neochorus in Greek, meaning her center of worship for the world, kind of like the Vatican for the Catholic Church. Her temple was, was on the earliest seven wonders of the world lists, and it's still on some of those lists today. I've got a picture for you of that temple. It's an artist's rendition. Isn't that thing something? Look at that thing. Pliny the Elder, a first century writer, allowed that artist to give some detail because that writer who saw the same temple that Paul saw, that writer tells us her temple was 377 feet long. It's a football field and then some long. And about half as wide, 180 feet wide. It was almost solid marble. Almost all of it solid marble. Its inner court, the part that was inside, surrounded by 127 columns, each of them six stories high. 
in the inside of that temple, the inside area of that temple, three times the area of the Parthenon, Athena's temple in Athens. Ephesus, the city, life of Ephesus, revolved around Artemis and her temple. It was the backbone of Ephesian politics, religion, and economy, and law. Impressive building, isn't it? Impressive symbol, isn't it? And Demetrius is suggesting that Paul's message threatened that and all it stood for. Let's see how these craftsmen respond to Demetrius' speech. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in an uproar. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. These pagans of the first century, man, these guys are riot ready. I don't know if they need to get alive for what, but almost... (laughs) Almost every city, a mob or a riot breaks out. Have you noticed? They're like sitting around. Here comes a riot around. Let's go! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions for Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. And Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province... Friends of Paul sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Don't go in there, Paul. Now, archaeology and technology helps give us a great picture here with the help of our own John Burns. There's West Bowles Church. Everybody wave. Oh, that's so cool. For those listening online, we're watching a Google Earth pull away from the top of West Bowles Community Church, and now we're looking at the United States. John's going to take us, Google Earth is going to take us around the globe to Ephesus, and not just to the city of Ephesus, but guess what they found? They found the actual theater in Ephesus we're reading about this morning. Isn't that amazing? They've uncovered the same theater in the ruins of Ephesus, so we can actually see where the riot took place. See it there on the hill? John will revolve it in just a second. See how it sits back in the caveat of that hill? Probably two more levels of seats above it have fallen away. That's it. That's where this riot took place. Isn't that cool? We can look at that 2,000 years later. i got a few more pictures of it. Go ahead, John. Now you see it's on top of that bowl, and we're looking out. That road that you see... Heading straight out, heads right to the harbor, at least the harbor of Paul's day. There you see a side shot of inside that caveat. Then there's one more, I think, looking from the road back at that theater. Two more tiers probably. Guess how many people that thing sat? It's a pretty big, um, pretty big theater for today's standards, but back then, that, that thing sat 25,000 people. Let's see what happened there. They all rush into the theater as one man, Paul says. Verse 32, and the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, 
that is, not a follower of Artemis, they all shouted in unison. They all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! 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 I was tempted to do that for two hours and see how many of you would stay. I really was. I thought that'd be, you know, you'd all peel off sooner or later. Or someone would come up with a white coat. Let's get them. <laughs> but I was tempted to do that so you could feel two hours. We'll talk about that more in a minute. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Now the Ephesian government gets involved. The city clerk has to show up and listen to his speech that follows. He gives legal advice. Ephesus's judicial system and law is impacted. Look at what he says. Therefore, since these facts about how great our God is are undeniable... You ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men, Gaius and Aristarchus, here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls they can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is... We're in danger of being charged. We are in danger of being charged with rioting. Rome took a dim view on its city's rioting. We are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. And in that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. Y'all go home. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Wow, what a story. Luke tells riveting stories in his gospel and in Acts, but these last couple from Ephesus are quite something, aren't they? I began this morning by asking you whether you ever wondered if our faithfulness really makes any difference. If you wonder that, as I do from time to time, consider Paul in Ephesus. Paul arrives in Ephesus all alone. The only missionary journey he took Alone, at least starting out. As soon as he gets there, he finds about 12 disciples. Interesting. He faithfully teaches and preaches and lives and gets to know and relates to it in Ephesus for about three years. Out of that faithfulness and through that faithfulness, God pours signs and wonders. And just look what happens. At every level, Ephesus is rocked. Paul's faithfulness rocks Ephesian politics. Historians tell us that Ephesus was in decline when Paul got there, but still very powerful and significant in the world. And her power was rooted in Artemis and her temple. That's how it was clinging to significance. People still came from around the world to make pilgrimages to Artemis and buy the little silver Artemis. Ephesus was her headquarters. And so any threat at this dire time in the Ephesian history... Any threat to Artemis was a threat to the city. And because Paul was faithful, people burned their magic scrolls, we read. And please, don't miss the political impact of that public burning 
Why does Luke bother to mention that those scrolls were burned publicly? Well, it's far more in Ephesus than a bunch of paper going up in flames. Perhaps the feeling of those unbelieving Ephesians who watched this burning, perhaps the closest comparison I can make for us today is how perhaps most of us, all of us, I would hope, at least it's what we feel like when today take the American flag and burn it in public. When these Ephesians took those magic scrolls and burned them in public, it was like they burned the Ephesian flag. The symbol of all that made Ephesus great. So I ask you, did Paul's faithfulness make any difference? And Paul's faithfulness obviously made a difference in Ephesian religion. The worship of Artemis is at great risk with all this Jesus talk. People are leaving the Artemis cult and joining the church. So many, in fact, that the Silvermist Guild and the other craftsmen, the economy of Ephesus, this great city, sits up and takes notice. Demetrius laments in his speech that Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. And people respond and responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ by putting their faith in Jesus. And as they did, the great Artemis cult felt it deeply. People's lives were changed. When those people burned those scrolls, they weren't burning a coin or a stamp or a rock collection. Do rocks burn? I guess not. They weren't burning a hobby. They were burning their, their Artemis Bibles, if you will. And how did the populace, the unbelieving populace of Ephesus, look at the burning of these scrolls religiously? Well, can you imagine how you would feel the impact on you, the impact to our church community if a bunch of you all got together and and in the parking lot you piled up all your bibles and burned them because you had found another god to follow that's exactly the impact of burning those scrolls had on the state religion of ephesus and so i ask you did paul's faithfulness make any difference ephesians politics is rocked ephesian religion is shaken What else? How about the Ephesian economy? We're told the value of those scrolls burned came to 50,000 drachmas. They estimate one drachma was about one day's wages. So 50,000 drachmas is 50,000 days wages. Or the average wage for 137 years. 137 years wages. I looked up the average yearly wage for an American non-managerial worker. So not counting management or CEOs or presidents or owners and the like. The average, the average yearly wage for an American non-managerial worker is about $37,000. So in today's perspective of wages and money, those Ephesians burned up worth of scrolls times 137 years. They burned up over $5 million. Five mil. Poof. And what's more, that powerful consumer block presumably withdrew from the Artemis-driven magic economy of Ephesus. Did that make an impact? 
did it. The silversmith and other craftsmen sure felt it. They felt it so deeply they started a riot. You know, that's a pretty desperate measure for an advertising campaign. Hmm, what should we do this month to promote our product? I know. Let's start a riot against the competition. So I ask you, did Paul's faithfulness make any difference? Politics, religion, economy, Paul's faithfulness makes a difference. Anything else? How about the law? How about the judicial system? Ephesus has to shove its city clerk out there, and he tells the people that Gaius and Aristarchus, and by implication at least, Paul and all the early Christians, the guy tells the crowd, did you catch it? These Christians, they haven't done anything wrong. But you all here, you're the ones in danger of going to jail. Actually, um, it was a death offense for rioting from Rome. You're the ones. That's huge. God takes a riot and uses it out of the city clerk of Ephesus' own mouth to make Christianity legitimate in the eyes of the law of Ephesus. Wow. So I ask you, did Paul's faithfulness make a difference? One P.S. this morning. I want to talk a little bit about passion. Passion for God. Passion drips from this story in Ephesus. It drips from the Bible. And there's certainly the passion of Paul in the early Christians, but I don't want to focus there. What... There's one particular passion from the story that convicts me to my core, and it doesn't come this time from Paul or the early Christians. It comes from these followers of Artemis of all places. Look at them. They run off from their houses and stores and fields and temples. They drop everything to join together in unity because they feel their God is being trashed. They chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, for two hours. And when I read that again this past week, the question that kept coming back to me was, when's the last time I chanted anything? Let alone for two hours. And okay, it's not about the form of chanting. Let me put it a different way. When's the last time I was so passionate so moved about my God, who, by the way, is the only God, a real God, the great ancient of days, all-loving, magnificent God. When's the last time I was so passionate about God that it threatened even to burst from me and was sustained for so long like it did from these Ephesian followers of Artemis? When's the last time that happened for me? I asked. When's the last time it happened? Ever? Back from when I, even I was growing up in church, we'd always have a congregational prayer. And as kids would be in church like, oh no, here comes the congregational prayer. It's like 25 minutes. Like, is this guy ever going to stop praying? (laughs) 
This time in today, right now, or every Sunday, is the only time in West Bowles Community Church's community that we all get together in one place to experience God. You know, 60 minutes. Okay, 90 minutes. <laughs> we are even here experiencing God for 90 minutes. It's like, oh, 90 minutes. Once we left after 90 minutes, these pagans would have still been chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for another half hour! Are we that busy? And I know you spend much more than 90 minutes. There's no magic about this place. It's the only time we get together, though, as all of us. Does it mean something to you? If not, then why do we do it at all? Some people say to me, well, we really are that passionate about God, but that's just not our personality. We're quiet. We show our passion in different ways, and to that I respond, okay, that's fine. I get that. But then I have to tell you, at least for some of those folks, not all of you, but for some of them, I run into these people at sporting events rooting for their kids at baseball games. And these supposedly quietly passionate people make these Ephesians look like amateurs. And maybe passion for sports or even passion for our children. You say, well, that's different. That's different than my passion for God. But, but is it? Doesn't it all come from the same well? That well of what truly and deeply and profoundly moves us to where we just can't stand it. We're so deeply touched. Something at least bursts from us. Whether loud shouts or quiet tears or something to show it truly means something to us. Something to show that it's connected to who we are, connected to our spirits, connected to our souls. And whether we're loudly passionate or quietly passionate, praise God for both extremes and everything in between. If we're all loudly passionate, no one would ever get in a word edgewise. But whether you're loudly passionate or quietly passionate about God, are you passionate about God? And does it show? Would people know? How long would it take them to know you're passionate about God? They're hanging with you. Ever? If we're truly passionate about God, there's one reason perhaps why we don't show it. Because we really don't think it makes that big of a difference. See, my opinion... Our faithfulness and our passion is much the same thing. We put our faith in Jesus. We put our passion in Him. How could we possibly live faithfully and yet without passion for God against such a hard battle against evil and against love of self? How is that possible? Living faithfully, living passionately for God. It's got to show. It's got to show in how we live our lives. It shows in Jesus' words in how we love God by loving others. 
I see these passionate Ephesians chanting, worshiping really, for two hours. And I wonder about my own passion for God. Where is it? And I see Paul and the early Christians passionate and boldly teaching and preaching and helping and sharing with others, especially the broken and needy ones. And I wonder about my own passion for God. Where is it? Do I keep it to myself? Am I, am I tempted to not put it out there on the line, out there? Because given all the evil and chaos in the world, I'm convinced it's not going to make any difference. So why bother? Well, Paul's passion, Paul's faithfulness makes a difference in Ephesus. He took an entire city, three years of his faithfulness and what spread and God's power. and ha- He took an entire city, pagan city, turned it on its head. What would happen if the American church were as passionate for people? Were as faithful and loving God and others as Paul was? Are we? I wonder what might happen in Littleton or Denver. What would happen in New York or L.A.? What would happen in Vegas or Hollywood? Revival? And why hasn't it happened in those cities like it happened in Ephesus? Is it because God's people are hiding under their covers? Or under their church pews with their personal salvation? Because they don't really believe in the power of God through them and in them to make a real difference out there? Is the reason it has not happened to a greater extent, at least in America, because Christians are satisfied with their own personal salvation rather than being spurred by it? To get out there and impact the world for God, first and foremost, at least, out of Jesus' mouth, by loving those that the world calls worthless and weak, like victims of child porn. Is that industry booming because we've given up all what's the use? Passion for a pagan false god came flooding out of that theater on the screen in Ephesus nearly 2,000 years ago for two hours. Will passion for the one and only true God come flooding out of our church 2,000 years later? And if it does, and when it does, might God use it like He's used the passion and faithfulness of Paul to change the world again? A few years later, Paul would write from a prison. To a le- uh, he wrote a letter to a church in Philippi. In it, Paul urges Christians to have the attitude of humility and sacrifice for others that Jesus had. I'm sure the passage from Philippians 2, 5-11 through 11, that you see on the screen is familiar to you. And right after that famous passage, there's something that Paul says next. Unfortunately, something that does not get Near the attention. And it's so unfortunate because it's the reason why Paul is focusing on Jesus' attitude of humility and submission. And these Bible, these Bible translators put a big break. I mean, the next verse even starts with, therefore. Paul emphasizes Jesus' humility and self-sacrifice. And then he says... Because Jesus humbly sacrificed Himself, Paul says, Therefore, 
my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. So my friends, is your personal salvation secure this morning? I hope it is. And praise God if it is. Praise God if you've made that choice to follow Jesus. Really, that's awesome. But then I have to ask you, to what end? Your personal salvation only? Now will you continue to work out your salvation in passionate, all-out, out-there love of God and others so that God can work through you to really make a difference? Will you? Will we? Please. If we don't, Isn't it all just one big colossal waste of time and resources? Let's pray. Father in heaven, please help us to make a difference. Please work in us and through us to make a difference. Please, Father, guard our hearts against the very odd thing of treating our personal salvation in Jesus' name selfishly and pridefully and exclusively for us only. Oh, Father. Help us to find again our first love. You, even before we were born. Help us, Father, when we're overwhelmed by and with the notion, the reality that you love us just because and give us salvation, eternal life in Jesus' name, just because that amazing grace, Father, help us not to run and take that into a corner. Help us to respond by that unspeakably great gift by having it spur us to explode out there so that the world may know about You and know about salvation in Jesus' name. How, Father? Through our love of others. As we love others in order to love You, which is what You asked us to do. Oh, Father, give us what it takes to do that. Please. And Father, this morning on Memorial Day weekend, we pray deeply for our country. And Father, I ask you, please, again, as the patriotic song goes, Father, God, please bless America, this wealthiest culture that has ever existed on the face of the planet. Please, Father, do what it takes. Do what it takes to turn her and push her toward love of God, love of you, and love of others. And not for herself. Please, Father, we pray deeply for our country this morning. 
Save her. Redeem her. May she use her resources to help the broken and the needy. In Jesus' name. Father, we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. On the way out, you have an opportunity to practice that faithfulness. You know the tornado that hit Windsor. Jack Schneider's been there for a few days assessing where we can perhaps best help. If you've got a few dollars left over, after you've given it all to the church earlier, right? Um, if you could drop a few dollars in the plate to help out those hurting folks in Windsor on your way out the door, that would be awesome. God bless you. Have a great weekend. We'll see you soon.